0: Live from Chatterbox Sports Studios, it's Off the Bench with Tom Brenneman. Hump Day. Good morning, good morning, good morning. And welcome to Off the Bench presented by United Dairy Farmers. I'm Tom Brenneman. We're here every day, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to noon Eastern time. Of course, you can join us. Many of you already are. With us on YouTube slash Chatterbox Sports or on Facebook at Chatterbox Sports, we ask you, as always, to please subscribe to the program. Hit the notification switch in case you missed some of the things we send out. You might want to check them out. On social media, we can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Tom Brenneman TV. That's Tom Brenneman TV. And many of you have elected to join us via the podcast. I can't tell you how many people uh, just in the last two, three weeks, yesterday, Three of them bouncing around town, telling me that they're going to wherever they get them, Apple, Google, Spotify, whatever. But we are available in podcast form off the bench with Tom Brenneman, and it will be there. All right, here we go. Winner take all yesterday afternoon in the American League Division Series. And the Yankees get home runs from their two big sluggers, Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton, in route to a 5-1 win over the Cleveland Guardians. The Yankees had to jump on a plane, travel very late last night. That's a long flight down to Houston, Texas. And they will take on the Astros, managed by our old buddy Dusty Baker, in tonight of Game 1 of the American League Championship Series. Meanwhile, in the NLCS, that started last night in San Diego. Bryce Harper and our old buddy Kyle Schwarber, the pride of Middletown, Ohio, Linebacker at Middletown, you may not have known that, but Kyle Schwarber hit a 488 foot home run. I mean, <laughs> that's insane. Zach Wheeler allows one hit, punches out eight, walks one in seven shutout innings. Philadelphia wins game two or games win wins game one, two nothing. We'll get it straight. Game two this afternoon in San Diego. The ace of the Philly staff, Aaron Nola, gets a ball. He'll be opposed by Blake Snell. Football news. Bengals back at it down at Paycor today in preparation of Sunday's game against the Atlanta Falcons. Bengals 3-3. Three and three. Falcons, told you yesterday, surprising 3-3. Three and three. Tied with Tampa Bay atop the NFC South. This is no walk in the park to quote our good friend Casey McAllister. Or is it Casey?
1: I don't think it's going to be a walk in the park just because of last week they were able to run the football.
0: They being Atlanta.
1: Uh, they being Atlanta. Yep. And so was they couldn't stop the run last week, the Bengals. So this is not a good matchup. And we're really shallow when in the defensive tackle spot right now with Tupou and a boot reader not being healthy yet. Um, we were all the way down to Jay Tufele, the guy that we got the very end of the preseason. Um, that's not good. It's not good. And Logan Wilson also being hurt. It's not a good recipe.
0: Paul, welcome back. Hello, Tom. How are are you? It was Big East media day yesterday in the Big Apple. You were at Madison Square Garden. I've never been there. Really? Yeah, never been there.
2: Oh, it's fantastic. It really is. I mean, it's it's everything you hear about. It is the best. It's the best venue to watch basketball. It's the lighting, everything. It's great. Let me ask you a question it's, because, it's I,
0: I mean, I've walked by the building a thousand yeah. times uh, in, in the hundreds of trips uh, I've made in New York. Do you walk in on ground level and then go upstairs Yes. For that that venue?
2: Yeah, it's connected to Penn Station. So you you walk in on ground level, and then you have to walk up. The court is a few floors up. Actually, if you take the elevator from the street level, it's to the fifth floor to get up to the court level. Yeah, I have
0: heard. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. That is amazing. Hopefully get a chance to check that out one day. Uh, And and we're going to pick your brain a little bit about this uh, Big East Media Day from yesterday, too. Um, Other football news real quick. The Ravens added – uh, multi-pro bowler, veteran Deshaun Jackson yesterday in a move to try and give Lamar Jackson some kind of deep ball threat. Deshaun Jackson, he might be up there in age, you know, mid-30s, but he can still run and he can still play. They uh, technically have him on the practice squad. I would imagine once he gets his legs underneath him and, and it, 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 for a guy like him, it might be a number of days. He's always in tip-top shape. Um, he's had a fantastic career. And so now he's with the Baltimore Ravens. The NBA season started last night. The Sixers fall to the Boston Celtics. And the defending champion Warriors, thanks to 33 from Steph Curry. How good is that guy? They blast the Lakers 123-109. Drama already in la-la land. Russell Westbrook, ever since he's gone there, it's always something. Always something. He said after the game that because his coach brought him off the bench during the preseason rather than starting him, it led to a hamstring strain that he suffered in the preseason. Coach's fault. Everyone else in the NBA opens tonight. They have huge expectations up in Cleveland for this year. They make the big trade during the offseason. They're very young. They're very talented. And it uh, be good to see them getting back at it. We got uh, on the show today, as always on Wednesday, we have my dad, the Hall of Famer Marty Brenneman. We'll talk about the baseball playoffs as uh, the American League Championship Series. His old buddy, Dusty Baker, starting tonight in Houston uh, and then in the National League. Scroll that off. There we go. I'm not savvy enough to know how to do that, but you are, Casey. Um, And game two of the National League. Series. Real quick, I b- b- before my dad comes on, he's due on in a few minutes. I almost fell out of my chair when you told me, Casey, that Xavier is picked to finish second. I'm sorry, Paul. Picked to finish second in the Big East this year. Yeah. Are you surprised by that?
2: Uh, I'm not surprised that they were in the top four. I had them fourth. I am surprised that they are second, but I'm also... On the other side, I'm not all that shocked because I think it's a little bit of gamesmanship from the Big East coaches. I think they see that Sean Miller is back. There's this Miller mania going on right now where you think to yourself, okay, they have a roster that was supposed to be an NCAA tournament team last year. Xavier starts 11-1, and one, and then they crash and burn down the stretch just like they had the, the previous two years before right. that. And you think to yourself, okay, you have this roster that has a – transfer point guard to a very highly touted freshman and a couple of potential Big East Player of the Year candidates in Jack Nunji and Colby Jones and you look around the rest of the Big East and you have to remember Jay Wright's not at Villanova anymore so you look at like UConn you look at Creighton who was a very good team last year went to the Big East Championship game but now all of a sudden they're top 10 nationally with a few transfers, and then the rest of their same team from last year. So I'm not all that shocked. They did get two first place votes. I'd love to know who voted for them. I would. Hmm. I would. We were trying to guess. I I guessed that Mata and Greg McDermott. Um, but I, I don't know for sure. That was totally a guess. But without Jay right there at Villanova, Villanova certainly still has the talent. But, uh, yeah, we're, we're 19 days from college basketball season.
0: So. Who is the new coach again? Remind me of Villanova.
2: Kyle Neptune. He was the assistant there for a long time. Then he went to Fordham and it was only at Fordham for one year. He had him right around 500. And then Jay just all of a sudden he retired. Yep. And so they bring Kyle Neptune back. The interesting thing is Big East has four new coaches this year. Sean Miller, Shaheen Holloway at Seton Hall, Kyle Neptune at Villanova, and then Thad Mata at Butler. All four of them, Tom, had connections Shaheen Holloway played at, at, at uh, Seton Hall. Kyle Neptune coached at Seton, at uh, Villanova. Thad, of course, was at Butler. And then Sean, of course, was at Xavier. So all four of them sort of a, a homecoming this year. That's nice. Interesting storylines yeah. around the Big yeah. East. Yeah, I mean,
0: college basketball, we, we, we told you yesterday, the uh, AP preseason poll came out. North Carolina – um, everybody back from a national runner-up team a year ago, ranked number one. But, I mean, right there, slotted in behind them. You could probably start flipping coins. You know, the, 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 the blue bloods, really, of college basketball. Maybe not a heck of a lot different than football uh, in that you have Gonzaga uh, loaded with talent. Can't find a way to win the big one. But Gonzaga, too, I think it was um, – why am I drawing a blank on three? Anyway, oh oh, Houston was a surprise at number three. Then you had Kentucky, four, Kansas, five. Yep. Indiana, 13. And how about the University of Dayton? Yeah, 24th. 24th. Good for them. Sean Miller's brother used to coach there, right?
2: He did, Archie. And then he went to Indiana. And now he's at Rhode Island. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That Indiana thing, you're supposed to turn this off. This this appliance company has been calling me. You should answer weeks. it on right, the you know what? No, You know what I'd like to do? I'd like to answer <laughs> that phone. I'd like to read them the riot act. Is what I would like to do, but um, we're not going to do it. I'm supposed to turn that off. Please forgive me. Uh, so we got Marty Brennan coming up here shortly. Um, Deshaun Jackson in shifting gear. You know, Marty's with us now. So let's go ahead and go to the Hall of Famer. Um, he's yelling at his wife, I think, before we actually turn him on. I saw him. No, I'm yelling. That's Millie. Well, well, what's wrong with Millie?
3: Because she raises hell. She barks for no reason. Well, that's what
0: dogs do. They bark.
3: I know that. Well, I know know how upscale this program is, and I don't want (laughs) to do anything to detract from whatever wisdom I am able to impart upon you and the two powers behind the throne.
0: Hey, before we go any further, Dad, I got to ask you. You know, we've got now... You know, Casey McAllister, Paul Fritzner, who has done Xavier basketball, cover the team now for a couple of years, a student there, a lot of broadcasting, has filled in for Joe Sunderman, right? Many, many times. So Paul was at the Big East Media Day yesterday at Madison Square Garden in New York. And okay. the topic came up. I'm going to let you take it from here, Paul, real quick with sure. Marty Brenneman, if you don't mind.
2: Yeah, so yesterday, uh, before the show, Tom and I were talking today about how yesterday at Big East Media Day, uh, obviously there's four new coaches in the Big East. One of them is Thad Mata. And we were talking about Thad, and he said, no, no, Paul, that's, that's Chad Mata. And I said, <laughs> Chad Mata? He said, yeah, just, just ask my dad when he comes on. So, Marty, I would like to know why it's Chad Mata.
3: Well, you know, my memory slipped. I know somebody referred to him one time as Chad. Who was it, Tom?
0: No, it was you guys when he was asked about, and I'll refresh your memory. Uh, it had something to do with Charlie Lucan.
3: I don't I don't remember that.
0: He referred to him as Lunkin.
3: Yeah, that's correct. He did. Yeah. So... In retaliation, I constantly referred, I, and I would do that on the radio when I was still working. I would call him Chad Mata, um, just, and I did that purposely because if you don't if you don't know what Charlie Lucan is, and you've been around for a while, then you ain't doing your homework. And so I had to drop a Chad in as many times as I could, uh, which I tried to make frequent, and uh, and that's the name of that tune, Paul. All right, so there you so have Just it. remember, if you interview him down the road, it's not Dad, it's Chad.
0: You know, I'd love to get him on the show because I, I, I think everybody would agree across the board. And, Dad, obviously you've called a ton of college basketball through the years, uh, both uh, uh, in the Atlantic Coast Conference, University of Kentucky, the NCAA tournament for CBS Radio a- and host communications for years and years and years. I think we yeah. all agree – that Chad slash Thad Mata is an outstanding basketball coach, and he went through a lot of physical problems uh, during the end of his tenure at Ohio State. I think the sport is better off with him in it.
3: Without any question. I think he's an outstanding coach. He's proven that everywhere he's ever been. Uh, And the Chad thing was just in good fun. That's all that was. I mean, it it was not based on any – Uh, negative uh, impression that I've ever had of it. I've never met the guy. And uh, um, I I think he's an outstanding collegiate coach. I think he's one of those guys who has flown under the radar for a million years in the wake of all the big names that uh, seemingly hang around forever. No, I think he's a good coach, and I think the game is better off for having him a part of it.
0: So he's back at Butler. Uh, He was there. And uh, then came to Xavier, if I yep. remember right. And yep. then he went from Xavier, naturally, uh, to Ohio State, where he had a good run at it. Took him to a couple of national championship games uh, where they got beat. Yeah, Greg Oden. Yep. 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 Um, so the baseball playoffs, when we last met, we were still in division series play. Uh, we Correct. had Tom McCarthy on the program yesterday. Your good friend and mine, yep. longtime television voice of the Philadelphia Phillies. You know, they they gone 20 years um, or almost 20 years since they were last in the playoffs. And, you know, last time they were there is when Roy Halladay no hit the Reds uh, in that series back in 2010. So, you know, closer to 13 years. But, um, you know, he, he said to us, he said he thought before the Cardinals series that they were going to beat the Cardinals. He was totally convinced of that. He did not think they were going to beat the Atlanta Braves. Yet here they are, they, yep. they, they they sweep the Cardinals, they beat the Braves in best of five, they beat them in four, dominated the series, and now, Dad, uh, up 1-0 in a league championship series. They got it going on.
3: They really do. Last night, Zach Wheeler was incredible. Um, it seems like every step that they make up, this young man figures out a way to pitch better. Um, you know, he had a no hitter into the fifth inning and lost the no hitter by that time. Um, you know, they got, uh, they have a two nothing lead as a result of the two solo home runs, the monster home run that Kyle Schwarber hit. And, uh, and I, you know, you, you, and we all know that pitching is, uh, if you buy into it, and I do, that pitching is, is what it's all about. Uh, now, having said that, I, uh, you will find teams at times that are loaded with pitching and simply figure out a way to stop hitting. And, uh, of course, San Diego is outstanding as far as their offense is concerned, but the Philadelphia pitching shut them down last night. And when you've got Zach Wheeler to go with Aaron Nola, which is a big one-two punch, you got something going for you. And the other uh, factor, and, again, I go back to it because I think it's important in the postseason, whether it be baseball or basketball or what, um, momentum and Philadelphia has got it going on right now. I mean, they, uh, they, I'm sure they feel very confident no matter who they play. Uh, and, and that is always important on the other side of the coin. You know, you got that Houston club that, uh, or that San Diego team that, that geared up and, and, and loaded up not only in the offseason but prior to the trade deadline, uh, now this second game is incredibly important uh for the san diego padres because i don't think they were, i don't know what the numbers are but i cannot imagine with the kind of offense they have that they were shut out too many times during the course of the regular season they still now have to reach back and figure out what we're going to do here in game two to get this thing even at 1-1 so, this is a huge game, I think, for San Diego, no question.
0: You know, when you look at two starting pitchers, and you mentioned them both, and Wheeler, because of the way the uh, division series played out, uh, he got the start in game one. Aaron Nola is their ace. He will start in game two. And, yep. you know, when you look at, at, at two guys, although you and I both were in agreement, uh, the, the New York Mets with a one two punch of Scherzer and DeGrom that they would yep. have a distinct advantage in game one. Scherzer laid an egg. Uh, the Mets top hitting, and they were done uh, right away. You, you, you know, when you've got those one-two guys, and I'm going to be very interested, Dad, because, look, I know people get tired of hearing it. You get tired of hearing it. But I can only harken back to the last big one-two punch that I was around, and that being Randy Johnson and Curt Schilling. Uh, I, I, I got to believe that, that, that those guys go game one, game two. Um, you bring back Wheeler in game five and Nola in game six. Um, I think San Diego, even one game into this thing, potentially is in big, big trouble.
3: Well, I don't think you can discount it. And Once again, we always get back to pitching again. And I agree with that. Uh, with those guys that um, they can look at, uh, Rob Thompson – he ought to be manager of the year in baseball, uh, not just, uh, you know, whatever votes he got in the National League, but what he did to connect club up from Joe Girardi and and getting those guys uh, to play, whereas whatever approach Joe made was not the correct one with this bunch that they've got. Um, and I agree with that. You have one or two punch. The key to that is, and you mentioned the Mets, is getting by your first two starts with those two hammers. Now, you know, if the if Phillies come or uh, 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 they come back with uh, NOLA in, in game number two and they win that, well, now they're in Fat City. Uh, but they have to do that in yeah. order to make those starts in games five and six should it go uh, – and, it, of course, this is the best of seven. Uh, to make those starts important, you have to win the first two behind the same two guys that you've got slated to pitch in games five and six.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um... You know, you mentioned a, a Manager of the Year, and Thompson takes over for Girardi. And, and, and Tom McCarthy had a lot of very interesting things, observations to make about that whole thing. Philadelphia being such an intense kind of town, we know how that is. Often you hear about New York. I'm not sure anywhere is more brutal uh, as far as fans getting on players' cases, media getting on players' cases, than they can be in Philadelphia, and he said that Joe yeah. Girardi, and we both know Joe and love Joe. I mean, he's one of my favorite guys I've ever met in baseball, and I think he's a good manager. Uh, uh, but, too. But, but he felt like that he was almost too intense and in all of it combined to create this very tense um, sort of feeling in the clubhouse and that Thompson has changed all that. On the flip side, uh, another good friend. Uh, I was just messaging with, with, with him uh, after they won the other night. Bob Melvin. You know, yes, it's one sir. thing to go out and bring in a, a lot of players, but I think it's easy to forget that their best player, and make no mistake, he is their best player, is Fernando Tatis Jr., who virtually did not play this entire season from injury and then getting suspended.
3: Well, I, I don't i don't totally agree that he's their best player. I, For me, I'll, if I had to pick one or the other, I'd take Juan Soto, but that's another story. Um, I think Bob Melvin's persona, Tom, is a carbon copy of Rob Thompson. He's a laid-back, low-key kind of guy who has the ability to get his point across. And and I don't know that there's ever been a place that Bob Melvin has managed where there has ever been any talk about the players not liking him. Now, I don't particularly think that's the most important thing in the world. I've often said when you go back, and maybe it doesn't work today, when we look at the early 70s when Dick Williams was reigning supreme in Oakland and the players hated him and he didn't like the players and the players fought amongst themselves in the clubhouse, but yet they went out and won. Um, I don't know that a manager like that can work today uh, with the kind of players that have come along since then. At the same time, I think Bob's is, is, is resume would indicate that he's a guy that however he does it, the players respond to. Um, Uh, he he did it at Arizona, Uh, he did it at Oakland, he's done it everywhere he's ever been. And so I think these two guys uh, approach their craft in essentially the same type of manner. Um, And, and, you know, talent, irrespective of the talent, um, both teams are loaded with talent, and now we're gonna find out. As I said, you know, you go back to tonight, tonight's a big game. Um, interesting to see if there will be lineup changes on the part of San Diego. I doubt it because these are the guys that got them there, and, uh, you, and we'll go from there. But I think this—if San Diego wins tonight, this is going to be a big series, and it will—it could very well go the distance. If they don't win tonight, they are in deep, deep trouble.
0: Your old friend, longtime friend. You knew him before he was manager of the Reds, and then you got to be very close with him when he took over and have stayed close with him and Dusty Baker. Uh, Here we go again with Dusty. Uh, He's led another team to the playoffs. He's led another team deep into the playoffs. They're in the league championship series. I think you and I both agree without a doubt that, that, that he should be a Hall of Fame manager, whether or not he wins a World Series or doesn't win a World Series. But it would certainly be the proverbial cherry on top it would slam dunk uh his his resume of getting into the hall of fame um and and you're not sitting there in the office with him doing a radio show every day but do you think that through all these years whether it was going back to the giants took them to a, a world series they lose to the angels He takes the Cubs to the National League Championship Series. They lose that that, that series against the Marlins. Now here he is with Houston. Do you think that he has changed it all through the years in his approach? Not necessarily day by day, but do you suspect that he would do anything differently in the playoffs than he's done his whole career this year? This year? Yeah, I mean, do you think he'll be – do you think that – do you think that there have been lessons learned in conversations you've had with him through the years that, that that might be something a little bit different a little bit wrinkle in the way he goes about his business or do you think he's Dusty Baker he is who he is he's gotten to this point by being who he is and we're going to keep doing it the same way
3: I think he's essentially Dusty Baker um, you know I used to tell him Tom when 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 I don't know that the handwriting was on the wall, but it was enough of a concern to me personally when he was managing this club. And I would tell him if I told him once, I told him a thousand times, I said, you know, you are so hell bent on being a player manager and you fall on the sword continuously. I said, don't you realize that they don't give a damn about you, that if you are fired, they will turn the page and will have a hard time remembering what your name was. Because at the end of the day, it's going to be all about them, and nobody's going to come to the uh, to to the media and come to the public and 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 chastise the organization for firing you because of what a great manager and person you are. He said, "You don't think I don't know that, but I am what I am, and I can't change it." Uh, I disagreed with him, and he got fired by the Reds. Uh, whether you agree with it or not, I didn't. Um, I, uh, I, I, but I still think that the players turned the page. And when you have a player come out and defend a manager in light of his being fired, uh, that is really a, a plus for that guy to make people realize how much they loved him. But I don't, I can't remember any player going in his defense when he got fired by the Reds. So I don't, I don't think he's changed a whole lot at all. Um, but uh, i i desperately want him to win this thing now um because he as as you said a moment ago all these idiots uh that that may be part of the baseball writers association and they'll whine. well i don't know whether i can vote for him or not he's never won a world series which is the biggest bunch of crap i've ever heard i think he's in the top five in all-time wins as a major league manager uh and and gene mock way back in the 60s uh when he was managing and everybody i know sparky used to say when i came he's the greatest manager in baseball and 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 i hear it and hear it and hear it and i'm thinking guys never won a world series so i i that is it nice to have in your resume without a doubt you know terry francona had two has two um but i don't think that dusty's changed a whole lot i think dusty feels like His his uh, approach to managing has stood him in extremely good stead, albeit with a number of different teams. And so I haven't seen any any indication that he's changed a lot. Now he's got a lot. He's got good talent down there. There's no question about that. When your stud is your Don Alvarez, you're doing okay, and you've got Alex Bregman at third base, and you've got the rest of those guys around that ball club. That's a good team. And and I think in the American League, you have the matchup. That a lot of people felt would be the match up when it yep. came down to the American League Championship Series.
0: You know, I I used to 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 get into arguments all the time with the quote unquote analytics crowd out there about you know uh, you'd hear about Tampa Bay and you know they get to the playoffs every year and I'd always say yeah they get to the playoffs but they never never win. win it. Uh, never. The one outlier in baseball that is a quote unquote small market team that wasn't spending a ton of money. There's always going to be an outlier no matter what. And that was the Kansas City Royals. They won the whole thing. That's going back now seven, eight years ago. But I'm sitting here looking at the MLB team luxury tax payrolls. Okay? Mets, playoffs. Dodgers, playoffs. This is in order, by the way, of highest payroll. Yankees, playoffs. Phillies, playoffs. Boston didn't make it. Padres, playoffs. White Sox didn't make it. Braves, playoffs. Astros, playoffs. All but two teams. And the St. Louis Cardinals check in at 15th with a luxury tax team payroll of $170 million. The outlier this year making the playoffs, the Guardians up in Cleveland. Dad, you can't win unless you're spending big money in this sport. And because there's no um, salary cap, and I don't think there's ever going to be one because the players' union is never going to agree to it. But this is a spend money if you want to get to the playoffs kind of league. End of story.
3: It does. But, but uh, on the other side of the coin, Tom, uh, these clubs that, that are winning and that are in the playoffs or were in the playoffs when they began, uh, not only do they spend a lot of money, but they also have a very strong analytics department. All these clubs do. Um, I think the mistake that baseball is making now—I uh, think the treatment that that scouts got um, in the wake of the uh, of, of analytics inundating baseball to the point that it did almost on an overnight basis—and uh, all of a sudden the scouts were less important—was uh, criminal. And I think the day will come. Uh, maybe not in my lifetime, but it will be in yours and, and the two powers behind the throne there, Paul being one. Anybody sitting behind the camera and, and, and you dominate the camera all the time. They're the guys. Um, I think you'll see the pendulum swing back toward the middle eventually and scouting will become even more important. I used to tell analytics guys when I talked to them, which was not very often. You can't tell me what's between a guy's ears. You can't tell me what's in his chest. And pardon the term, you can't tell me what's between his legs. You, Al, Jose Altuve would not stand a chance of being signed and, and given a chance to play Major League Baseball today. But I'm getting off the subject. Um, I know what you're saying. And and uh, you know, it, I guess it's the old man in me that, that never took a liking to analytics and and I I feel sorry for the broadcasters in the business today that are forced to talk about it and forced to like it whether they do or not is another thing because I think it takes a five beta Catholic key to understand a lot of it and I'm not smart enough to understand a lot of it but well, if you're going welcome. to work if you're going to work in this game today and and you and I'll tell a story that I I don't think I've ever told publicly but when Bob Melvin was managing Oakland. And we were the Reds were out in Oakland playing the, the A's, and he and I we were friends for a long time and always respected him as a great baseball mind. And we were standing on the sidelines talking um, to uh, about the game itself and and the analytics and and old school and the clash of the two. And he said to me, Marty, let me tell you one thing: if you want to work in this game today, you better buy and fall in love with analytics. Because if you don't, you're not gonna find a job. And I believe that. I think there are a lot of guys that are working today that a lot of this stuff is contrary to what they believe in based on their coming up and playing and managing in the minor leagues or getting the big leagues and managing that is contrary to whatever they've been taught. But if they wanna work, then they're gonna have to buy it hook, line, and sinker.
0: All right, before I let you go, Prediction for the American League Championship Series. You go way back with Aaron Boone. Uh, He's navigated through that whole thing in New York. I mean, you know, I I,
3: thank God for it.
0: I almost would give the manager of the year uh, every year to whoever manages and gets to the playoffs. uh, If you're from New York or Philadelphia, but it's just insanity in both of those places, day in and day out, and the grind of the job. Now the Yankees outlast the Guardians. Uh, Garrett Cole has been spectacular in the postseason in his two starts, but he's got to wait. Uh, they yep. had him warming up just in case in the bullpen in the ninth inning yesterday. And how about your boy, by the way? Before I get a prediction, how about your boy, Wandy Peralta?
3: Unbelievable. I mean, here is a guy that you know. I don't think he can look back on the time he spent in the red uniform with a lot of of uh, pride. But I'll tell you one thing, the guy has matured and, and has been able to hang around the major league scene for a long time. And his finest hour uh, hours have come in that series win over the Cleveland Indians. What he pitched three or four days in a row. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it was as sharp last night. I mean, it was three up, three down. I mean, One runner reached, I guess, against him in the ninth inning. But he was spectacular. And uh, I'm happy for him. You know, he's a left hander. He's, he's got his act together, and and God bless him for uh, appearing the way he did.
0: Well, heck, we all, we all saw because he did have a lot of good moments with the Reds. It became an issue like his second or third year where he couldn't throw the ball over the plate, and that's what got him in trouble. But his stuff has always been really good. All right, prediction, um, all right. Astros v. Yankees. What are you expecting?
3: Well, the thing that Yankees have hanging over their head in this series is that they faced the Astros in 2017 and lost. They faced the Astros in 2021, and Jose Altuve had a walk-off home run in, uh, I guess it was his sixth game, uh, to clinch it again for Houston. So the history would indicate that the Astros have – uh, an edge over the Yankees, uh, and they're still obviously the players that played last year for New York are the same players essentially, with some changes this year. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to go with the I'm going to go with Houston because uh, I'm, I'm betting tonight that Justin Verlander will not have the kind of start he had in his last outing, which was so poor, giving yeah. up what three or four home runs that I was concerned about whether or not he was healthy. Obviously, he was. He had a bad game. You expect a lot when that guy goes to the mound. Um, I'm 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 betting on. Uh, I think the I think the Astros have a better rotation. I think they're deeper in their rotation, and also I think they have the edge in the bullpen. Um, and so we'll see what happens. But I I'm, I'm I'm betting on Houston to win that thing. I don't think it'll go any less than six games. It could very well go seven. But I think Houston will win it and be in the World Series.
0: All righty. Well, we thank you, as always, every Wednesday with the Hall of Famer, Marty Brenneman. You know, our big interview today is with who? The Cowboy.
3: Really? Yeah. Well, be sure. Tell him I said hello. I didn't hear very much from him during the season. So tell him I said hi. I will. I will. All right, right, pal. Enjoy the
0: rest of your day. We love you. I'll talk to you later. Love you, too. All right. See you. Marty Brenneman, kind enough to join us at Jeff Bramley. The Cowboy is coming up in about 10 minutes. We'll be right back. On Off the Bench, presented by United Dairy Farmers. All right, we're back on Off the Bench, presented by United Dairy Farmers. Uh, We got lots of folks joining us um, on YouTube in the chat room. Um, You know, a a good point made by Alex here. He said, we'd love to hear more old stories about the Reds. I, I think what we do is one of these days is we have Marty Brenneman as our big interview. Because a lot of people around here, they love hearing about, you know, the days of the Big Red Machine and, uh, and all that kind of thing. I think that'd be a good idea. Uh, let's see. Huh. Schwarbs, hitting dingers. Like to know, did you know he's from Middletown? I didn't know. Did you know? See, you know, we talked about this
3: yesterday. <laughs> Look, there
0: came a point in time when I'm doing the games – uh, for the Reds, and every time Schwarber came up, I'd mention he was from Middletown, played linebacker on the football team, all that kind of thing. And then I realized uh, that 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 became almost sort of a bit, of people expecting it and making fun of it. Right?
2: When, did, when did you realize that and how? Very early on, Okay, very early right. on.
0: So, you know, after a while, sometimes you just got to do things for showbiz. And so, uh, you know, every time he came up, I would make sure that, um, that we mentioned that. So there's that. Um, Our big interview today is Jeff Brantley. Uh, He and I are the same age, in fact, born the same month, the same year, September of 1963. He was born down in Florence, Alabama. Uh, Grew up down there, big sports star, played collegiately at Mississippi State. I mean, he's a Mississippi State guy. Through and through, there's no debate about that. We're going to ask him about that football team down there in a minute. You know, he played in the 1985 College World Series on his team. Think about this team for a minute, right? Jeff Brantley, all-star. Bobby Thigpen, all-star. Will Clark, all-star. Rafael Palmero, all-star, arguably. A couple of those guys could be in Major League Baseball's Hall of Fame. Uh, was drafted all the way down in the sixth round by the San Francisco Giants, despite being the all-time winningest pitcher in the history of the Southeastern Conference. He goes to the Giants, he's starting in the minor leagues, gets to the big leagues, they make him a reliever, ultimately becomes an all-star, role leads, uh, man of the year, Reliever of the year with the Reds set an all-time single-season franchise uh, mark of 44 saves. He's pitched in the World Series, multiple playoffs. And he joins us now from his home in Mississippi, the Cowboy. You're looking good down there, Cowboy. Bright and early <laughs> for you, my man. You're not normally an early riser, but you still got Mason hanging around at home, so I guess you got to get up and at him.
4: Yeah, you got I got to get up and get going with Mason here because he's um... – He's up at school, and, um, you know, he's, he's actually got a brace on, Tom. Cracked his back for the second time. Yeah, I was getting ready to say he's had that before, right? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Um, I guess it's just part of um, growing really fast and probably too much hitting. You know, we do, we do things a little different than as we did when you and I were growing up. Um, but you would think I would know a little better being a baseball person, but uh, uh, the kids kind of do what they're going to do. And um, he had to. He's got. To, he had to go back in it. He's got about three more weeks in it. But um, he's been a good sport. He's a lot better off than I am because I would have been fit to be tied.
0: What grade is he in now? Tenth grade. Wow, I can't believe it. God, I know. Day. is he still playing football or no? Just baseball. No, can't,
4: he can't do football with the way this back is. He may, he may go back and play next year, but um, at this point, I, I don't even know that it's worth it. You know, I mean, he's he's a good little baseball player, so we'll just probably stick with that.
0: I want to go back to you growing up. I've heard you tell this story before. Uh, you know, your mom and dad were incredibly supportive, um, you know, uh, with, with, with you growing up and everything that you were doing growing up. But tell this story, if you wouldn't mind, about you and your dad getting in your car, his car, <laughs> And listening to Cincinnati Reds baseball games when you're growing up down in Alabama, do you remember how that even started, and and how often were you guys doing that?
4: Well, the the thing about the thing about that, it, it came kind of a weird way because I I love watching Reds baseball, and or not watching, but just listening to the radio and listening to to different teams that would be on. Well, what I ended up doing is. I was listening on our radio at home, inside the house, and I had a difficult time kind of holding the station. I, I, I couldn't keep it, I couldn't keep it on inside the house. So um, we were out driving one one late one afternoon. It was about you know five thirty six o'clock, and I had the station on seven hundred, which in Hoover, Alabama, uh, that's a Spanish station all day. You can't, you would never think that that would be the Reds. So. I'm listening to, you know, listening to the radio. My dad's like, what the heck are you listening to? I said, the Reds are gonna come on here at six o'clock. He goes, they are not, he goes, that's Spanish. Sure enough, six o'clock hits, boom, there's the ball game. And, but the only way that you could keep it on, if you were in the house, it would kind of get real um, sketchy and you couldn't hear everything and it was kind of in and out. But if you were in the car and the car was moving, you could hear it crystal clear. So instead of driving around the neighborhood, we just sit in the driveway, kind of back the car up, pull the car forward, kept the car moving, and you could keep Marty and Joe on the entire time. I mean, it was just kind of the way it was. And, I mean, that's kind of how I I grew up listening to baseball.
0: I mean, I would imagine where you grew up, you had uh, the overwhelming majority of kids that love baseball, love the Atlanta Braves. Uh, and, and here you were, a Cincinnati Reds uh, fan. Who, who was your favorite player with the Reds growing
4: up? Don Gullet. How do you how do you go from and and this is kind of a funny thing because I loved watching Gullett pitch, and you know he just he was just that guy that just seemed to always be the um, be the guy that picked up the wins you know that that did well. Well, when I got traded from the Giants to the Reds, Gullett was our pitching coach, and. You know, it wasn't like I could run in there the first day and say, hey, how you doing, boy? I'm really glad you were my favorite player when I was growing up. I didn't want to do that. Uh, so I just waited for a little while. And over a period of time, we developed a really good relationship. I mean, he was a, a great pitching coach, a great human being. Um, I learned a lot more about Don Gullett, that he was probably as good of a football player running back than he was a baseball pitcher. Uh, and I didn't know any of those things when I was in high school. But what, what was really cool about the whole thing is that when I actually did have the conversation with him about, you know, growing up in Alabama and um, that I used to, you know, used to pretend I was him when I was a kid in the driveway. Um, I, I, I think it meant a lot to him. I, I mean, it was, you could tell he was kind of touched by that moment. But if I'd have done that on the first day that I was in Cincinnati, I don't think it would have made that impression. So I, I waited and kind of developed our, our relationship, pitcher and pitching coach, and then after that period of time, You know, I just kind of waited for the moment and it kind of felt right. So I just told him and um, it was really cool. I mean, how many guys get to pitch for the guy they used to pretend that they were when they were a kid? I mean, that that worked out great for me.
0: Yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, When you're coming out of high school – Were you one of those heavily recruited guys? I mean, Mississippi State's big-time program, man. I mean, and the stuff they've done in recent years, and you're part of the reason why uh, of helping that program. I mean, their facilities are just insane for baseball and everything else for that matter in the SEC. But were you a big, big, heavily recruited guy coming out of high school? I had a chance to go to South Alabama. I had a chance to go to
4: UAB and play for Harry the Hat Walker and i had mississippi state those were the three schools that that talked to me um i i thought that you know when i was in high school you know i mean i was just a kid i didn't know a whole lot about the recruiting process or what was going to happen but i thought that i was going to go to alabama and play quarterback and be on the baseball team well (laughs) as i I realized quite rapidly that was not going to happen not at five nine and a half quarter that's not going to happen in the sec as a quarterback but I, I truly did think that I was going to play baseball there. And the the coach at at um, Alabama at the time was Barry Schallenberger. And um, he basically just told my dad, he, he can't pitch in the SEC. He's not big enough. And he goes, we don't need him at shortstop. And we don't think he's ever going to be a, a Southeastern Conference pitcher. Huh. Boy, that's all I ever needed. That's all I ever needed. That, that was the chip that sat on my shoulder for the rest of my life from the time that I got to Mississippi State, and from the time that I got to the big leagues, um, if there was ever a a struggle or ever a time that I didn't think I was going to be able to do it, I I remembered what that guy said to my dad. And it just always was a a tremendous motivator. Um, At the time, I thought the guy was the biggest jerk of all time, but he may have made the biggest difference in my career by saying that.
0: Isn't that funny? You know, you know I, I, I think to some extent, and you see this, you've seen it with your daughter, uh, uh, one of your daughters, who's an outstanding, you know, volleyball player uh, when she was kind of up through high school, and now your son, Mason. Um, and, and 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 you've done it. I coached youth basketball, uh, both my sons' and daughters' teams, for six years, coached my son's baseball team. I joke all the time, I was such a great baseball coach that all the kids on that team now play lacrosse. <laughs> But, but but no, but isn't it funny how, you know, in this day and age, and I'm not saying every parent is this way, but I certainly see a lot of it, especially now with younger couples and families moving into our neighborhood, just like you, where you are in Mississippi, how, you know, they don't want you to say anything controversial or edgy or whatever it might be to little Johnny or little Debbie or whoever it might be. But oftentimes it can be that sort of edgy sort of kick in the tail comment, which you just alluded to that can make all the difference in a world for a kid.
4: Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I think we've we're kind of changing that narrative a little bit as we as we move forward. but there there seemed to be a time and and the players will tell you this. the athletes will tell you this, where um, from the time that they started playing maybe, six, seven years old, whatever their their sport was, it was pretty much no matter how good you did or how bad you did, you were gonna get a trophy. And they were gonna pat you on the back and say, job well done. Well, you know, life doesn't really work that way. I mean, it's it's not get a pat on the back and get a trophy for everything that you do. There there comes some work and some some failure and learning from that failure and making yourself better because of it. And, and I think we're, we're kind of changing that a little bit. Um, But I know for a good period of time, because my older son was this kind of brought up in this same avenue, you know, and and I would get on him, you know, for for not playing well. And he was a a goalie in high school for a soccer for our soccer team. And I would get on him and he said, well, you know, nobody else is getting on me about it. And I'm like, well, I'm your dad. You know, I'm supposed to tell you the truth of what's going on. I mean, these other guys are just patting you on the back. You want to be you want to be the best. You don't want to be just kind of show up and play.
0: When you get to Mississippi State, uh, you have that chip on your shoulder. Um, you're not the tallest guy in the world. You just made reference, you know, 5'9", five, 5'10". Five, For whatever reason, there's always been this incredible bias. Well, let me ask you this. Why is there a bias? And, and boy, if it ever holds true, it holds true now. Why is there such a bias um, against Pitchers that are under six feet in this day and age—it's almost under six one or six because they all seem like they're six three, six four, six five anymore. Why does that exist? If you throw strikes and you get people out, what the hell's the difference if you're four ten or six ten?
4: I think the the biggest reason, Tom, is that if you're the if you're the team that signs a certain player, uh, you have much more room for mistake if the kid is big. And he throws really hard, because that way, if he doesn't ever learn how to spot the fastball, at least we can stick him in the bullpen and let him throw at 95, 96 miles an hour up top, and teach him a breaking ball. That it's 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 all in where the where the drop off is in talent, or where the drop off is is what your expectation will be of that player. Um, if you've got a guy that hits a lot of home runs and he's a big kid, well we might be able to teach him to get hit some singles every now and then. But we have the given of hitting the home run. It's the same with the big kid that throws 100 miles an hour. We have the given of throwing 100. We may turn him into a guy that can hit the corners, and boy, he'll be spectacular if he can. But here's the problem. If you're 5'9 a half, and you throw the ball 90-91, you have to be perfect all the time. You've got to be able to hit the corners. You've got to be able to throw a breaking ball for a strike. You've got to have a split finger or a changeup that you can move. And here's the biggest part of that. If you're that little guy, you better be one bad son of a gun or you're not gonna make it. You better be tough right here or you're not gonna make it. Those other guys that throw the ball a hundred, they'll have good days and bad days, but everybody keeps calling them and keeps coming back to them because of one thing, not because they're good, not because they're big, but because they throw 100, and somebody will give you a job.
0: Is there a point in time, Cowboy, where you're in college, and maybe it's different for every single guy. I don't know. I'm, I, that's why I'm asking the question. You're surrounded by guys, and I, I went through the names a minute ago, uh, of Will Clark and Rafael Palmero and Bobby Thigpen, and here you are, the best starter on a team that goes to the College World Series is there a moment a game is it during the season is it during the postseason in college where all of a sudden it dawns on you that I'm a big league I'm potentially going to be a big league pitcher or player
4: it didn't it it never it never did until I was almost at the end of my senior year um I never I never really thought about that and it's probably good that I didn't um I just thought about winning ball games I, to be honest with you i I started on Saturday and then I'd turn back around and start on Tuesday a lot of different weeks, which is unheard of in in this day and age in college baseball. You pitch on Saturday and then you have seven days off until you pitch the following Saturday I, I didn't do that. I pitched Saturday and pitched tuesday i mean i I was just trying to win ball games for our team and and that's that's kind of how I thought about it and and when I look back at it, that's probably the reason that I did so well but as far as like thinking about a, a professional career or making money playing baseball, that that never really, really crossed my mind. Never really, I was never really even introduced to that until the end of that season. And I mean, we were in the middle of the regional and heading to the College World Series when I started hearing from different scouts, well, we're thinking about drafting you here, we're thinking about drafting you there. And I'm like, well, that that's great, but I, I'm, playing in the World Series, we can talk about that after the fact. I mean, it just kind of didn't really creep into my head.
0: Um, You get drafted sixth round. Now, back in those days, correct me if I'm wrong, the draft was still roughly 60 rounds, right? 60, 62 Mm -hmm. rounds, something like that. Sixth round sounds very different now than maybe it did back then when you go to professional baseball and you walk in the clubhouse, where was your first stop? And what was it like the very first day you walk in with a bunch of cats? You don't even know, right? Never met before, <clears throat> never been around, uh, maybe different part of the country. Where were you? And what was it like?
4: We went to Fresno, California. Um,
0: and you'd never been to California.
4: Huh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I got there, I wanted to go back home. Um, but I, you know, being a Mississippi, Alabama boy, and then I show up in Fresno, um, the, the only saving grace, to be honest with you, is that Will, Will Clark and I were drafted by the Giants at the same time. He was, of course, the first-round pick. I was the sixth. But we went to the same club uh, after we signed. And we both showed up relatively at the same time. Um, and we showed up to a team that was in dead last. Uh, they had a losing record. They had gotten destroyed in the first half. And fortunately for us, the the, halves in, the the minor league season is broken into halves. So you have a first half winner, you have a second half winner, and then you kind of go from there. You That's kind of how you create your playoff teams. But um, we got there basically as the second half was beginning, uh, along with the second round pick out of TCU, Brian Anuka. And... We went from a team that had only, they had only won, I think, 25, 30 ball games to a team that we ran away with the second half uh, of the league. And not only did we run away with it, we won the championship in the California League. And, and I don't know that, I don't know that because we were there from a physical standpoint made that much difference. It wasn't like we were winning every game that I pitched, or we were winning every game that Anuka pitched, or that Will Clark was hitting home runs in every ball game. It was just the fact that we came from a program that we were used to winning, and we weren't going to take losing, and we weren't going to take it from those guys, and they knew we weren't going to take it from ourselves. And so it, was a, it wasn't just a, a physical change. It was a mental change for all of those kids that um, we're on, that, we're on that club. I mean, I say kids, we were kids at the time too, but we were all young and it was just more of a, a mental change than it was anything else. But I'll tell you this, I've never had a culture shock in my life than, than what I had going from Mississippi State to Fresno, California, to A-ball. There was dirt on the floor, it was, I mean, you couldn't even walk on the floor in your bare feet. You had to wear shower shoes or tennis shoes to get from your locker to the field and then you put on your spikes. It was the worst place I'd ever played in my life and worst place I've ever played since.
0: (laughs) You were a starting pitcher still then, though, right? So you're coming up through the Giants uh, organization, as you were at Mississippi State. And I mentioned earlier, when you left there, you were the all-time winningest pitcher in the history of the Southeastern Conference. Um, But when you get to the big leagues now, uh, they ask you to move to the bullpen. What was your reaction? I mean, you're thrilled to death to be in the big leagues, right? Okay, that, that that's a given. But now all of a sudden you're asked to do something really, cowboy, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that you hadn't done much of, if at all, before.
4: Yeah, i um I got to the big leagues as a starter, but once once I got there, I, I realized, you know, pitching pitching seven innings, which was what was expected at, at that point in time in Major League Baseball. Um that was going to be really difficult for me because every pitch had to be precise. And that kind of gets back to your question earlier when we when we began this interview about size and, and the ability to throw the ball. I just couldn't sustain the precision that I had as a pitcher for seven innings. I could do it for five, but I couldn't do it for seven. And with that being said, they asked me, um, what do you think about pitching out of the bullpen? I said, well, I've never done that before. And so they sent me to winter ball. I played down in Mayaguez, Puerto Rico and basically pitched out of the bullpen. And to be honest with you, I absolutely loved it. There was nothing better. That that was a godsend for me because I came to the ballpark every day, ready to pitch. It was like being an everyday player. And former Reds manager, Jim Riggleman was my manager down there. And he said, I've never seen anything. He goes, you, you come to the ballpark to pitch every day. I said, well, I don't know any different. I said, this This is fun. I said, my arm feels great every time we get here. And he goes, well, he goes, I'm just going to keep pitching you until they tell me any different. And I pitched a lot and learned how to get ready, how to get loose out of the bullpen. Um, and the rest of it, I guess, is kind of history.
0: You know, it, one of the things among many things, and look, we all get older and, and, and you know, I know there are times I sound like, you know, the, the, the old guy get off my lawn kind of thing and wish it was this way, wish it was that. I, everybody will understand what that's like as we all grow older. But, but, but one of the things I think that, that, that young players are really missing today, and I don't know if there's ever been a group of people that were like the veteran group of people that you were around when you went to the San Francisco Giants. I mean, these guys, and we're still dear friends with all of them now, uh, Dwayne Kuiper, Mike Kruko, Bob Brindley, uh there were others in them. You had some characters around there now, Jeffrey Leonard and some, some of these guys like that. Um, they did not make it easy on a young Jeff Brantley, when you first came to the big leagues, you might be buddies with him now, but I don't know how tight you were when you first came up to the big leagues and baseball doesn't have much of that anymore. No. And and I,
4: I think part of that Tom is it, 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 I didn't understand it at the time. Uh, I took it almost as a, as a hazing ritual every day, to be honest with you, because I was the only rookie on the club and it just seemed like everybody was telling me to do this, do that, uh, rook here, rookie there. Um, but I think what it did is it, it it made me have a purpose of belonging to the club. Um, there was always a reason for somebody to come and talk to me, whether it was about pitching or or whether it was because they wanted me to go get their coffee. I mean, they just they just kept on and on and on, and they never let up. But it it didn't really give me any time to be nervous. It didn't really give me any time to, to think about what I was going to do on the field um, because I I stayed pretty much mad. I mean, I, I was. I, I didn't like the way that they did me, um, but I, I think and when I look back on it and now where I, where I am now, um, retired from the game, and I look back at that moment, it just kept me from ever being nervous. I mean, they, they kept me feeling like I was part of the team and part of their group, even though it wasn't my ideal situation uh, from my standpoint, but um, it helped me.
0: You now all of a sudden slowly well, – not slowly, quickly – Uh, become an integral part on what was a budding really good team with the San Francisco Giants Uh, you got Roger Craig out there as a manager you're a vital part of a bullpen you've got a couple of good starters and a team that gets to the World Series Um, when you get to the World Series I want to back up a second your first time to get to the playoffs that 1989 League Championship Series, there may not be a lot of people that remember that, but, but I'm going to try to put it in a very brief context here. On 8-8-88, that was the first time they ever had a night game in the history of Wrigley Field. One year later, here come the playoffs at Wrigley Field. Now, the Cubs had been in the playoffs in 84, but of course, at that point in time, they hadn't been to the World Series in 50 years almost what was that experience like playoff baseball um why you you know you weren't there the, okay yeah so that was your first trip correct me if i'm wrong to the playoffs is that right yes what yes. was that like that experience like
4: um you know I, i'll be honest with you tom when when we got to the playoffs in 89 and we were playing the cubs um I really thought this was that's just how it was going to be every year. Um, you know, we had just finished a few years earlier, um, you know, in the, in the College World Series. And then here a couple of years later, I'm playing in the Major League playoffs and heading to the World Series. It, it just felt like that's how it was supposed to be. Um, now, granted, I never got back to the World Series after that 89 year, but it, it just felt normal. Uh, It it felt like that's where I was supposed to be. Now, ultimately, when you look back and you think of all the things that happened and how it came about and and you look at the performance that Will Clark had against Greg Maddox and hitting the Grand Slam and the other two hits that he had, I mean, it just um, it, it kind of fell into place for us. But at the time, I just felt like that's where we belong.
0: Must have been pretty cool at Wrigley when you know back in those days, it, and San Francisco was the same thing, where the bullpen is actually in the quote unquote field of play, right? And you're sitting down there, and you got fans on your ass. I mean, you know, nonstop oh. down there, right? I mean, it had to, did it go to a whole new level once the playoffs started? Because you would pitch at Wrigley Field before and sat down there, but was that a different experience entirely in the playoffs down there?
4: Yeah, I I think at at that point, they brought security guards down and they had them sitting basically on both sides of our bullpen bench because the bench is right up next to the stands. And I don't know if I've shared this story with you before, but earlier that season, I had I had I had won my first six decisions and I'm sitting at Wrigley in that bullpen and a fan at the end of the ball game reached over and grabbed my hat off of my head. And as they grab my hat, the, the game's over and the fans are leaving. He grabs the hat, takes half of my head of hair with him. And by the, at that point, it was pretty long, I can be honest with you. <laughs> takes half of my hair ahead with him back up the steps. Well, my first reaction was, that's my hat. And I turned, I jumped over the rail and I took up, up through the stands. And the next thing I realized they were all of the ushers, the people came out of nowhere. They were all over me. I mean, just surrounding me. Let it go, let it go, let it go. I'm like, the guy's got my hat. I mean, I could see it. I could still see him in my head, him running up those steps and taking off. Six and hat. Well, my next decision was a loss, so it was an awfully good hat for me. <laughs> but I, I think that's part of the reason when we got to the playoffs and we're playing there at Wrigley that they put that much security around us because I mean, not only could you touch the fans, but they could touch you. I mean, your, your seat was right up next to that brick wall, and the fans were sitting not even a foot behind your head. So it just it just made for a little more comfortable atmosphere than what it was earlier in the season.
0: You get to the World Series. Um, I've shared this story. I happen to be there uh, basically as a gopher for Johnny Bench, who was announcing the World Series uh, for CBS Radio. You get to the World Series, and you, you don't even have to leave home. You're playing the Crosstown Oakland Athletics. Um, First two games are in Oakland. You guys get beat. Now you come back to San Francisco. The earthquake hits. Where were you? What was it like?
4: Um, There was a tunnel between the Giants locker room and the first base dugout. We were on the first base side. And that tunnel was about 40 yards from the opening of the door, you came out of the locker room, you took a left, and then you walked kind of a gradual incline up to the dugout. Well, that's where I was when that earthquake hit. And there's supposed to be um, you know, emergency lights or whatever in in case of a situation like that, They, they didn't work. There was nothing. And when that earthquake hit, Mike Lacoste and I were just turning the corner and you could see that little bit of light at the very end of the tunnel where the The dugout steps went up and everything went totally black. I took my glove, I threw it underneath my right arm and I extended my left arm onto the concrete wall and I took off. And he was right there with me. I I don't know what was in that tunnel, but they had all kind of stuff down there. Because of the World Series, they had a lot of cameras, a lot of different you know, stuff that they had moved into the tunnel because of the I guess the hype of the game being the world series, but that's where they stored everything. We're tripping and falling over all kind of stuff and get to the dugout and then realize, okay, at this point, everybody's screaming, you know, yelling. And I mean, they were kind of cheering. It, it wasn't like it was, every, everybody was scared. Um, they were kind of cheering like, all right, well, let's play, let's play. And you could see the fans, they were wanting everybody to play. And this will kind of tell you, a, baseball players mentality in the middle of crunch time, we're all thinking, okay, if this stadium collapses, we need to be out by second base because that way it'll fold up around us. So we all started heading out that way. And then we're thinking, well, why, that that ain't gonna help us. If this thing collapses, we're done no matter where we are. So everybody stops. But there was such a huge commotion around behind home plate. And a lot of it had to do with the radio reports that we had coming in and the TV reports that we had coming in to those cameramen and the the people that were reporting because they had all the earpieces in, they, they knew things that we didn't know because we had just come out of the locker room. And when they started talking about the marina being on fire, they started talking about the collapse of the Bay Bridge and the 880 Expressway over on the Oakland side, all of us were like, oh my gosh, you know, I mean, I can remember my dad after the fact, he said he was standing out on the, the the concourse outside of the stadium where you kind of gravitate up to the upper part of the stadium. And he's looking out over the bay. Of course, he'd never been to San Francisco. And after that day, he would never come back. So he's, he's looking and he said he could see this wave of water coming up from the South Bay. And as it hit the bay, the cars, started to hit each mm-hmm. other that were facing east and west now if they were facing north and south they just kind of rode the wave and you know here i am and and this is kind of kind of a sad thing to say but i mean it it ended up being a, a life and death situation for a, a lot of folks um but just from from my personal standpoint my parents came out to to watch their kid play in the world Series they stayed out there for 10 days and then never got to see a game at all I mean, that's just kind of the way. I mean, there were there were people that didn't make it through the earthquake. There were people that didn't get to see the games. I mean, it was just a travesty all the way around.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'll never forget that. Uh, it, no one will ever forget that when you're a part of something like that, as long as I live. Um, you go to the Reds, and Davey Johnson <coughs> is the manager. I think. The argument could be made, and, and you tell me if you disagree or agree, I, I, I think the argument could be made that one of the three or four greatest minds in the history of baseball is Davey Johnson. You come to the Reds, and, and your first meeting and conversation with him goes how?
4: Um, I told him I was going to be his closer. That, that was my first meeting with Davey. And he said, well, he goes, we got to see what happens with Dibble. And he goes, you know, Carrasco throws the ball up towards hundred miles an hour. And he did. Um, he said, we'll just, we'll just kind of see how it goes. I said, all right. I said, I'm, I'm just here to tell you, I'm going to be your closer. And that, I, I think in Davy's mind, he appreciated that bit of brashness from a little guy, You know, and just the way I was, I was talking about this is what I wanted to do, and I'll, I'll, I'll prove it to you. I just, it's just going to take a little time, and over a period of time, um, Dibble got hurt, Carrasco couldn't throw strikes, so I ended up the guy that just slowly moved his way back to the back end of the bullpen, and once I got it, it was mine.
0: Yeah, you had it. I mean, you set the all-time franchise history: forty-four saves in a season. I still look back at that team, Cowboy, and, and I look at the talent on the field. Now, granted, you know, you guys played the Atlanta Braves in a league championship series. That year it was a weird year, strike and all that kind of thing. But but, but from the year before, uh, boy, that, that was some kind of talented team that never won the whole thing. Yeah, I, I thought we really had a
4: – I thought we had a great club in 94 uh, when we had the strike and then the lockout and it just kind of – Everything evaporated, but when we came into '95, um, I I'm, I don't know that we had a better team in '95 than we did in '94, but we had an awfully good team. the The problem that that we had, as you just mentioned, we ran into Maddox, Glavin, and Smoltz. And you know when you're when you're facing those kind of pitchers, and um, you know I mentioned earlier about Will Clark hitting the grand slam off of Maddox. Well, this is a Greg Maddox that was seven years removed from that. And he was as smart and as well-located of a pitcher as I've ever seen in my life. And I mean, for a, for a guy to have to go down to the bullpen and practice throwing the ball up right before the series against us, I mean, that should tell you a little something about him. I mean, he he knew what he was doing, all three of them did. They're all Hall of Famers. And when you run into that kind of whip, uh, it, it, it made it difficult.
0: Shortly thereafter, you start having to deal with injuries, and, and you go to a few different clubs uh, along the way, Philadelphia, St. Louis, um, Texas. What is it like for a guy, if you can take us inside your mind, and, and, and I always picture this kind of thing, and maybe I'm way off pace, maybe it happened somewhere else for you, of a guy who was a, a great star, an all-star, One of the elite closers of the game. And that's one of the ultimate macho positions in professional sports. And that is the closer of a really good Major League Baseball team. And all of a sudden, these injuries start to prevent you from doing what you used to do. Does it get pretty dark in some of those hotel rooms or training rooms or wherever it might be when those things start to happen to a player and for you in particular?
4: Yeah, I, I think once you once you have that first major injury, and for me that was in '97, I had to have shoulder surgery, um, and, and I can remember coming out of that surgery. Um, I was talking with um, James Andrews and Tim Krimchek. They they both did the surgery together, and Dr. Andrews came in afterwards, and he said, um, he said, "Well, it's a good thing that you came in." He said, "Your shoulder looked like a bomb went off." And I thought to myself, wow, that's not exactly how I thought I was going to get the the pep talk after my surgery looked like a bomb went off of my shoulder. That's, that's not a good feeling, but going into that rehab, once I had the surgery and going into rehab, to be honest with you, Tom, I thought I'll be back. It's just going to take me a little while, but I'll be back and everything will be fine. That was the furthest thing from the truth. I, I can still remember when I had signed a three-year deal right before um, I had that surgery so I could stay in Cincinnati. I mean, the only place I ever wanted to play baseball was in Cincinnati. And here I am. I, I finally win the Rolaids reliever of the year. I had the best year in my career. And I get hurt. And then I'm traded to the Cardinals. So in, in my mind, I'm thinking, OK, all right, I'll, I'll figure this out. But, you know, when when your brain is always set on, and and this is my head was in this position from the time I was 10 years old. I wanted to pitch on the same team that Johnny Bench, Pete Rose, Don Gullett, Davey Concepcion, Joe Moore, that's the team I wanted to play for. And that's where my heart was. And when I got traded to the Cardinals, not only was I in a sling, but my heart was ripped out. Mm -hmm. And then here I am playing in a Cardinal uniform. And to tell you the truth, it was never the same after that. Not not only from the, the heart standpoint playing in the game, but from the arm standpoint, because I would try to locate the ball down and away, which was always my bread and butter. I could, I mean, I could paint on the outside part of the plate. I would aim down and away and the ball would go up and in. And I would aim up and in and I'd pull the ball down and away. I I had no idea where the ball was going. And, you know, for, for a guy that made his life on precision and execution, I couldn't do any, either one of them. Number one, I was throwing the ball at 85, 86 miles an hour, which I thought, well, oh, this is terrible. Um, you make a mistake, they hit it out. It, it's not like you make a mistake and they might hit a line drive somewhere. They, they were hitting it over the fence. Um, so the, the competitive aspect of it for me really started to take a downhill dive because that's what I always had that great pride of being able to challenge the hitter and go after him and fight for it how do you fight for something when you have no idea how to locate or throw the ball anywhere close to the plate
0: when you were still playing it it, it was really kicking into gear the whole steroids era uh, there's no doubt you saw it. You knew who guys uh, – look, look, if you were around baseball clubhouses, I was around them every single day. You could walk through the, the, the clubhouse and you, 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 you could just go bam, 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 bam. I bet money on it, this guy, this guy, this guy, right? Um, I'm curious because we also know – and and you saw this too. I mean, there was a point in time where greenies were being taken all the time by players. Amphetamines to get up and get that body roaring again. And there are a lot of guys here in the Hall of Fame that were taking a lot of greenies. And 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 that is a an absolute fact. And it's not to name names or anything else, but that is a fact. Should the guys who were PED users, and to my knowledge, the only one who has ever come out and, and absolutely admitted that they were was Mark McGuire. I've heard Palmero say he didn't do it, Sosa, Barry Bonds, on and on and on. Whether you think they did or they didn't, you can't prove it. So I always say innocent till proven guilty. Um, should those guys be in the Hall of Fame?
4: Well, I'll answer it this way. There are guys that are in the Hall of Fame now that were steroid users. So if that's the case, then are you not allowing these other guys in simply because – you didn't like them. I mean, it, it becomes less about performance and more about whether they were good interviews or nice guys. Because if you've already voted guys in that were steroid users, then where where do you, where's the bias here? It, it ultimately comes down to, well, you just didn't like them. They weren't a good interview and you didn't like them. Maybe they were too arrogant for you or you didn't want to vote for them. Um, but I, I think that, the, the standard there is a bit skewed. Do I do I like the fact that there are guys that were steroid users and they're in the Hall of Fame? Not a second. I'd like to have them all out. But with that being said, in true fairness, if you have one, then you need to have them all.
0: You become a broadcaster. You start with ESPN. I mean, you're cruising right along, much like your playing career. You're moving up the food chain, the whole nine yards, and all of a sudden you get a call Uh, from a Cincinnati Reds and here we go with the Reds again right I mean you grow up listening to them in the car in your driveway Uh, you get a chance to pitch for them Uh, we've talked about that now you get a chance to broadcast for them but let's face it and I've been there a lot of guys you know you're on TV on ESPN or Fox or wherever it is you are and now all of a sudden you make the decision to leave there to come be a radio guy in Cincinnati there aren't many guys that make that move why'd you do it
4: um, I I think the the biggest reason is the same reason that when I when I left San Francisco and was being recruited by those Atlanta Braves that um we ended up playing in ninety five. I mean I, I, I can still remember talking to Bobby Cox on the phone and I said, Bobby, I want to pitch out of the bullpen and he wanted me to start and he said, Well, we'll We'll start you every fifth day, and then when your turn doesn't come up, we'll pitch you out of the bullpen. Well, when your manager tells you that, basically you're the fifth starter, and you're going to be a swing man, and you'll pitch just, you'll start whenever we like it, and then we'll stick you in the bullpen when the other four guys are starting. That's how, that's how that conversation went. But to end up being to being in the Cincinnati Reds organization and being able to pitch in the big leagues, that was my dream from the time I was 10 years old. And then it got taken away from me by getting traded to the Cardinals. So when I had the opportunity to come back to the Reds and be able to broadcast um, alongside your dad, the guy that I listened to when I was 10 years old, how could you turn that out? How could you turn that down? There's no way, I I mean, there's no amount of money that gives you that kind of satisfaction. And I took it.
0: Well, well, now, I mean, now you're, you're known all over town. I mean, every time I turn on the radio, you're schlepping some product here and product there, and, <laughs> and one of them being our good friends from United Dairy Farmers, uh, who are the sponsors of this program. Um, the state of the Reds now. Um, look, and I said this, um, you know, last week when, when I'm talking to Dave Lapham, who broadcasts the Cincinnati Bengals games. Uh, I completely understand it. I've walked in your shoes where you're an employee of the team. So I, I just lay that out there ahead of time because, I mean, look, somebody signs our paychecks, they sign our paycheck. There's got to be some loyalty there and so on and so forth. Um, you look at the Reds and the direction they're heading. What do you see? Um, as good a
4: pitching as we've developed in a long time. Uh, that's, that's what I say. But that, that's coming from a pitching person. Um, I believe that if you can catch the baseball and you can pitch well, you'll figure out a way to score enough runs. But if you can't pitch and you're playing at Great American Ballpark, you're gonna get your brain speed out. And we've seen that. The, the issue that I see now is I look at the arms that we have and the development moving forward, and it makes me feel good. Uh, what doesn't make me feel good is that we don't catch the ball very well. Uh, we don't turn double plays when we should turn double plays. And we're not hitting the ball out of the ballpark. If if you're playing at Great American Ballpark and you can't lead the league or be in the top of the league as far as home runs are concerned, that's a problem.
0: Young pitchers, you made reference to, and I want to I want I want to walk through the top two in particular because you and I have both seen through the years, Cowboy. You've played with the guys, you've watched them as a broadcaster, whatever it might be. There have been a lot of guys, maybe not like Hunter Green, who's throwing 1,000 miles an hour seemingly every pitch that he wants to throw 1,000 miles an hour. Um, but there have been a lot of guys that came up and had success, and then for whatever reason, uh, they came back the second year, maybe that quote-unquote sophomore slump. But then moving forward, they never became the guy you thought that they had a chance to become. I want to ask about, in particular, the top two guys. What And maybe they're the same thing. I don't know, but they're different styles of pitchers. What does Hunter Green have to improve upon before opening day next year?
4: Um, I was asked this question earlier in the season, and I thought that he needed to improve on his ability to attack hitters, but also at the same time being able to improve his fastball location. Uh, That was always my biggest criticism of Luis Castillo. Uh, with that kind of fastball, but yet there was never an ability to locate with any kind of consistency up until this year. Um, when when you throw the ball 100 miles an hour and you can locate, uh, you're gonna get a lot of hitters out. You're gonna get the majority of them out all the time. And I, I think that when Hunter took the month off there in the month of August and came back for the last four or five starts. Uh, there was, number one, there was a different mindset when Hunter Green was able to take the mound. And I, I like that a lot because I, I I err on the side of aggressiveness. I, I want a fighter out there. I don't want some pansy pitching. And when, when he would take the mound those last four or five starts, uh, it was a different pitcher. And not only from the mental side, but he was able to locate the ball on both sides of the plate. Was it pinpoint location? No, but... Was it good enough? Yeah. And if he's able to do what he did in the month of September, going in to the next season and beyond, oh, we are going to have a lot of fun in Cincinnati watching this guy.
0: Nick Lodolo, left-hander, strikes out a lot of guys like Green does uh, when he throws strikes, and we saw him battle with that, and you see that with a lot of young pitchers. Heck, you see that with guys been in the league three, four, five years. What's he need to do to get better? I think the the
4: biggest thing for Nick is is consistent command of his breaking ball. He he's got a wonderful breaking ball. One of one of the better left handed breaking balls that I've seen. And and Tom, you saw this guy pitch, so you know what I'm talking about. And and that's Randy Johnson with his breaking ball. I I have seen and heard scouts and front office personnel compare Lodolo's break on the breaking ball to Randy Johnson. Now, does he throw as hard as Randy or is the breaking ball as hard? No. Is the break as good? Well, probably not. But if you're being compared to that guy, I mean, that should tell you something in its own right. Guys are standing at the plate, right-handed batters and swinging, and the ball hits them in the back foot. Hey, get out of the way. They can't get out of the way because the ball is breaking too sharp. I mean, that, that should tell you how good that pitch is. Now, if he's able to command that not only on the down and inside to right handers, but being able to command it back door to righties and being able to throw that on the front door side to lefties. We already know that he can throw a change up. We know he can throw the ball 97 miles an hour with movement. So he doesn't have to be so precise with his fastball location because of that left-handed movement, if he gets command of that breaking ball where he can throw it and use it as his number one weapon, I mean, that's that's your one-two punch. I mean, you've got Green, you've got Lodolo, and then Ashcraft coming behind him, and, and who knows who else. It, it makes me feel good about our starting rotation. Now, let, let's let put this out there. Those guys have to stay healthy. If they're not, then you got a problem. And, and you're gonna have a major problem because there are a lot of hopes that are being thrown on these kids. But from what I saw at the end of the year and moving forward as far as what I, I think, just my opinion, I, I think it's gonna be awfully fun. We just gotta support them a little bit better.
0: Yeah, and that's the the, the, the the one thing I wanna follow up on. Um, you're not the general manager. Uh, if you were the general manager, um, you know, you, you look ahead to next year, Uh, You you figure and and hope and pray. Stevenson comes back. He's still your catcher. Uh, India, I don't know if they're going to move him position-wise. Senzel, I don't know what they're going to do with him position-wise. Kyle Farmer will certainly be a big part of this team. Joey Votto in his final season, more than likely, is a Cincinnati Red in the last year of this contract. But if you've got to go out and put together a team in the field, you talked about the defensive woes, and look, even guys like Senzel and India struggle on defense. Okay, so I don't know if it, it means you, you change them positions again. You've already done that with Senzel a number of times, to a lesser extent with India. Uh, do you go out and build a team in the offseason if you're not going to spend a whole lot of money? And it's probably safe to say the Reds are not going to spend a whole <coughs> lot of money. Do you go out and and, and, and buy a t- or, or, or assemble a team of a bunch of guys that can just hit the ball out of the ballpark? Or for the next year or two, while these young pitchers are coming along and young players in the organization that they're very high on are coming along, and you build a team a little more like Cleveland had, where you're small balling a little bit more, you're defending a little bit better, because finding guys, in my opinion, that are going to be in the field next year, and actually who's going to be there. I mean, what guy is going to be playing where next year? So what would you do, I guess, philosophically with the team while you're trying to rebuild and wait on some young players? Because you still got to put people out there for 2023 to play.
4: My main focus would be on the defensive front. I'll be perfectly honest with you. Because the future of this franchise as it sits right now is going to be determined by how well these young pitchers do. Um if, if you don't support them from a defensive standpoint and being able to catch the ball and help these kids develop and get better and better and reach their true potential, um, then you, you've you wasted this opportunity. I mean, you've, you've got three or four guys that could really help you on a starting standpoint every fifth day. As long as these kids are healthy, they've shown enough that they can do this. We got to catch the ball better. And that, that doesn't have to be guys that come from hitting the ball out of the ballpark. We just need some guys that can run and go get the ball. Now, do we have that? Um, maybe, maybe not. But I, I would say that if if you go and you put down Votto's name at first, if he's healthy, and you put Tyler Stevenson's name down, that's going to be behind the plate if he's healthy. Um, I've got to believe Kyle Farmer is going to be playing somewhere. We don't know where that's going to be at this point. But what other position is guaranteed? Right. I can't imagine anything.
0: That's why I say cowboy. I mean, I, I've been saying it, it, it ever since the show started a month and a half ago. And I don't say this in in a in an angry, in a mean, in a, in a judgmental sort of way. I, I, like you just said it best. Who are you going to put on the field to play? You got to have eight position players every single day, and you just named two for sure. That means you got six. If they if they're healthy, if they're if that's they're right. Healthy. If there Vados coming back uh, from the from the from the the injury and, and, and Stevenson multiple injuries, um, do you think do you think India and Senzel change positions again? again, I, I know you're not making that decision, but do you foresee that?
4: I, I think that's what the Reds kind of behind the scenes have have talked about. Um, but changing a position at the major league level is a, a lot more difficult than what it looks at on on the on the front side. Um, but let me, let me ask, I, I would say this and I, and I've, I've said this, if, if you're going to move Jonathan India and, and you're going to take him out of his second base spot, where are you going to put him? You can put him in left field. Is he as, is he as good to you from a wins above replacement? That seems to be the, the big trend now in, is he better in left field? Against a traditional left fielder than he would be at your second base spot. I mean, the guy won the rookie of the year at second base. Did he have a rough year this year catching the baseball? Sure, he did. But I mean, does that mean you just give up on the guy? I like the guy. I think he can play second base, give him an opportunity, work a little different, change the way that you go about it. But I, I, I don't know that you make your team any better by taking Jonathan India and moving him from second base and sticking him out in left field. Guy's never played outfield in his life. Yeah. We did that with Senzel. Moved him from the infield and stuck him out in the outfield just so he could be on the roster. Has, has that worked out? Hmm, not so much.
0: Okay. All right. Well, Cowboy, uh, before I let you go, uh, you know Mississippi State's having a pretty good year uh, in football. What do you think of that head coach down there? I mean, he's quite the character, isn't he? Oh,
4: I, I love listening to his interviews because you have yes. no idea what he's going to say. Yeah, you, you. I mean, he, he could bring up something from back in the 1920s. You have no idea what he's going to say, and it doesn't matter what question you give him. He's just going to throw something out there. But I do like the excitement. I mean, when you're at Mississippi State, it's not like you're expecting to go 12-0. and And you did expect that team to beat Kentucky. I will say that. There are a lot of folks down here very unhappy at this point in time. But you turn around, and now you're playing Alabama. So um, things, are, things are a little, little less um, excitement down here with, with Alabama after they lost to Tennessee.
0: Well, that, that was an unbelievable game. I don't know how much of that you got a chance to watch. But, uh, I mean, that Every was bit of it, unbelievable game. Um, all right, Cowboy, I, I can't thank you enough um, for joining us today. It's always awesome to hear your voice, to see your face. Uh, My dad told me to tell you hello as well. He was on just a little while ago. So all the best, my friend. God bless you and and your bride. Please uh, send her my love. We miss seeing Ashley around and Emily and Murphy and Elizabeth and Mason and everybody. And you take care of yourself, my man. Have a good rest of the winter. All
4: right, buddy. You do the same. I enjoyed it.
0: Thank you. Jeff Brantley, kind enough to join us today for the big interview. And I, I know many of you enjoyed that. I mean, Our numbers were just climbing as that interview went on of the number of people that um, <laughs> I should have shared with Cowboy. We, we got one comment that says, Mike Leach, the head football coach from Mississippi State, should replace David Bell as <laughs> manager of the Reds. <laughs> um, yeah, one thing um, uh, we, we, I meant to ask him about was, was, you know, the whole move thing. You know, look. Look. It's always tricky, the move thing about Tyler Stevenson, would you move him to first base? It's been talked about a lot. Votto's coming back for his last year. They're not moving Tyler Stevenson to first base this year. Down the road maybe, but not. it's not happening. You know, Votto's healthy. You know, it, uh, you know a, a lot of you have suggested that, you know, I ask Cowboy about this or about that or whatever it might be. Uh, in fairness to him, I, I'm not gonna put the guy on the spot to say things that might be very controversial about a team where he gets his paychecks, I'm not going to do it. And and I'm sorry if some of you you know maybe you, you get upset that I don't. But I've been in his position where I've been interviewed by by people, uh, and, and I'm working for the Reds or I'm working for the Diamondbacks or I'm working for the Cubs, uh, and they're asking me uh, about something with the team that's not my job, right? I'm not the general manager of the team, so I'm not going to tell. People, how they should do their job. Uh, in this, in this seat, we can do that, right? But, but not in his seat. I mean, he's getting his paycheck signed by Bob Castellini every two weeks, and, and I'm not going down that road. Uh, all right. When we come back, cherry on top. We're getting out of here early today, fellas. We are back in a moment. All right. Here we go um, with our cherry on top, presented by United Dairy Farmers. Uh, Paul.
2: Jamar Chase is mic'd up, but they didn't release the full clip in time. So I changed it up, and it's still a great clip. And it, I want to give credit to Bobby Tewksbury on Twitter for putting this together. It's a short one, only five seconds, but it's a compilation of the angles from last night's uh, Kyle Schwarber home run. Put this up here, oh boy, Casey. Look at this. Every angle. Show it a few times. It's quick. Just look at the extension on that. 488 feet, second longest postseason home run since 2015. Look at that. Not too many times you see a home run – like that. Just perfect contact on a baseball.
0: Especially a guy from Middletown, Ohio.
1: <laughs> the pride of Middletown.
0: Was a linebacker there for the Middies. Trying to remember the story he told me when I asked him about it one time. Uh, I didn't get into the follow-up story much. Uh, you know, I would just kind of jab all the you know people out there that wanted to hear it. But I'm trying to remember, I think it, he told me the story cause he was a really good linebacker and I asked him about it. And he said, you know, he said, I thought that I could play college football and big time college football. He said, until we played Braxton Miller, former Ohio State quarterback, great yep. player played when they shifted him to a wide receiver in the NFL. Had he not been injured in college, guy would have won a Heisman as a quarterback. Um, but he said, he, "He said we're playing, man. I'm, I'm trying to remember who Braxton Miller played for. Huber, Huber Heights, Wayne. And he said, there. Um, he said all of a sudden, there was a play where they, they gave Miller comes on some option or RPO or whatever. And he says, I got him right there. He said, I'm about to blow him up. He said, and the next thing I know, I go to make the tap. A little, and that cat has just vanished and gone like 80 yards for a touchdown. He's like, that's it. He said, I, 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 do you win? playing uh playing football uh anything on anybody's mind before we get out of here today boys you've been very quiet today casey Uh, i'm just
1: casey's grinding over here i'm just grinding um i've got not a whole lot to say i'm saving it for thursday and friday okay
0: let me ask you this though because you you admittedly are, are trying to to get in and learn a little bit more about baseball did you get anything out of that conversation at all with Jeff Brantley that you, you, you found was kind of something you didn't know or something you found interesting that maybe would want you to follow baseball a little more or maybe a little less?
1: Um, I mean, I enjoyed the, the, a lot of his <laughs> – what I really enjoyed out of that interview was his perspective on um, following up – following someone his whole life as a child wanting to be like them. And then he ends up being a relief pitcher for them. I think that's really cool. Um, Out of that interview, I really like that story a lot. Um, I can relate to – a lot of people can relate to being a kid, wanting to be like someone. And um, him ending up doing that was really cool. Um, The stuff about the Reds and, like, what what, what we're going to do, I – you know, that just makes me depressed, honestly, (laughs) thinking about what they're going to do in the outfield. I mean, they've got – maybe a solution with the pitchers and we might have a good bullpen. We'll see. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I enjoyed the interview a lot more just his personal life, but when it comes to the actual baseball stuff, ah, man, that's tough, but I am enjoying watching some of the playoff stuff, some of the highlights and whatnot. I'm enjoying that. Um, there's the Dunce cap guy right there. <laughs> I
0: mean, you know, is, his timing is impeccable. <laughs> go ahead, walk on in, Dunce. Go on, go on I in. mean, you know, we're still waiting for you to get the hat, Brandon. Happy to be here with you every day. Nice to have you here. Nice to see. You used <laughs> to be, you know, you know used right to right be now. in a catbird seat over there. You know, I've never worked on camera before, so I have no idea
2: how to look at cameras and figure out when to not walk in.
0: I'm new at this. Yeah, I mean, we only, you know, it's not like we have nine of them in here. You know, we got three. Paul, any thoughts uh, from Jeff Brantley, Marty Brenneman, uh, Brandon Seho, any of the above?
2: No, I really enjoyed I mean, I've been listening to Brantley forever. I really enjoyed that interview. And and like Casey said, hearing those things about, you know, you hear your whole life or you hear those stories. Like we know that Jeff has always been a Reds fan. But hearing some of those details fleshed out more and, and how disappointed he was. I thought the surgery was interesting. I had never heard that story yeah. before, uh, at, at least in as great a detail as he told it today. Where he was talking about his shoulder and and how difficult that was, both mentally for him and physically. But not only did he have the surgery, but then had to get traded away from his favorite team, and that that's tough. And yeah. and you hear stories, you hear stories now about guys that you know have such connections to their teams, whether it's because they forged them. You look at a guy like Joey Votto that has been around for so long. And it's like you, you've built a home. You don't want to leave where you are. And even Brantley's connection farther back than that, just being a Reds fan for so long. Uh, yeah, I, th- I thought that was a really good interview. I really enjoyed that. Uh,
0: he, I, I enjoyed it too. Um,
1: is he still the most winningest pitcher in the You know SCC? what? I
0: think that I think somebody passed him, um, and, and, and I could be wrong about that, but I think somebody within the last couple of years passed him. Uh, but But he had that forever. You know, I'm terrible. I don't know about you guys. I'm really bad at... I'm really good uh, uh, of having an idea, and then it kind of comes in, boy, great idea, out the door, and I can't come back and remember it later. Um, We have got to get Davey Johnson on this show. There are a lot of people, maybe your guys' generation, that don't know as much about Davey Johnson. Um, This guy... I'm telling you, this guy was one of the greatest managers in the history of baseball. Um, and he rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. He won the World Series with the Mets. That's when the ball went through Bill Buckner's legs back in 1986. Davies is brash. You know, was a great player in his career with Baltimore, um, among others, and Atlanta. Um and he just rubbed a lot of people the wrong way because he would do it his way or he'd look an owner or he'd look a general manager right in the eye and tell him to kiss his tail and he's not going to do it the way they want to do it. He said, we're going to do it the way I want to do it and all we're going to do is win. And that's all he did. But then at the end, and we see this a lot, where maybe the guy's getting a little long in the tooth, uh, maybe hanging around a little too long, goes to the Dodgers, um, and and that whole thing was a mess. Frank McCourt was the owner. It was a disaster out there, not the Dodgers of today and not the Dodgers of yesteryear. This was somewhere in between, uh, and so it didn't end on a great note, but he went on to become the manager of Team USA, won a gold medal, been very involved behind the scenes uh, in the sport of baseball. We got to get that guy. The Nationals, up. too. Well, Yeah, Nationals, too. That's exactly yeah, right. Took uh,
2: them to the playoffs in 2012. Yep, yep. A catastrophe.
0: Catastrophe. I mean, total bullpen meltdown. Same thing happened to them, happened to the Reds. Yeah. That year. They, Same they, year. And they, they both won, if I if I recall, they both won the most games in the National League that year. Yeah. 97 the, games.
2: Yeah, the National. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, yeah. Nationals may have won one more. They might have been the one seed, Reds two seed, yeah. whatever it was. But they both spit it up. Um those games, the Nationals and the St. Louis Cardinals, I think it was. Were, yeah, it was were the just Cardinals. Just insane
2: games. Well, the Nationals were up by two with two outs in the ninth inning. Well, they were up by more, a lot more than that. They were up that, by though, more than that, but I'm saying they, and, yeah, yeah. they were one strike away from being up and winning that series.
0: All right, we're getting all kinds of compliments. Leif, Leif, Leif Erickson. Me, what's that? <laughs> Leif Erickson. Do you know Leif Erickson? It's <laughs> Do I know Leif Erickson? <laughs> no,
2: I don't think you would.
0: The old—is that a man or a woman? <laughs> That's a fair question. Leif
2: Erickson, like the old—it's the old—it's a—it's a, it's a mythical—it's a like the old Viking
0: guy from way back when, isn't it? I, I have no idea. What the hell do I know about? Hold on, hold on. You guys, on, on. You guys are by? making. You me... You guys are laughing like you... it's some inside joke.
2: No, no, isn't Leif Erickson? Well. Hold on,
1: Lee Ferrickson is a bison. yeah, yeah,
2: he's a Norseman. You guys were making me feel like I, I can't tell if I'm being no, we we
0: know it. Is this it. a hidden on, camera hang thing?
1: Hang we know it from our generation from SpongeBob, huh?
0: Yeah, are we talking we... about Spongebob? No, <laughs> are you kidding me? We're talking about Spongebob? I wasn't Leap talking Ericsson. about Spongebob. I mean, come on. Leap there Ericsson are a lot of things real we talk about around here, but Leap Spongebob? Erickson is a real
1: person, but our generation knows Leaf Erickson from Spongebob. There's an episode that he goes into detail about Leaf
2: Erickson. To be fair, I was not talking about Spongebob. But I that's... do know what he's talking about, but I was not. But I that was talking about the legendary Norse explorer from the uh, right.
1: early 11th century. I'm just saying that's how we know Leif Erikson from. Like, we didn't learn it in history class. Like, it's so okay, random. Leif but...
0: Erikson was uh, a Norse explorer. And this is going all the way back to the year of our Lord, 970. Right? Yeah. He only lived. Boy, he... Boy, did he live. Um, yeah, he Norse did. explorer thought to have been the first European to have set foot on continental North America. Yeah, there we go. See, I, I should have known that. I thought I That's was a getting... long time ago. I would have learned that, and obviously it, it made a tremendous impact on me. Uh, but they, they, he's believed to have been a guy who stepped on North American soil before Christopher Columbus.
2: I think he was the son of Eric
0: the Red, who was also a famous Norse. you're leader. looking that up. You, you I mean look I looked I looked, up, I looked up. I looked up Leif Erickson. Yeah, but he Leif is Leif the son Leif. of Eric the Red, the founder of the first Norse settlement in Greenland. Okay. Well
2: a little history lesson. Jerry on top.
0: Boy. Yeah, I've shown off my ignorance. Is it, is it anyway, Leif, Leif Erickson tells us um that uh now we're all he 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 reminds us that um once again Kyle Schwarber was an all state linebacker for <laughs> the Middletown minis. <laughs> Stuff never ends. It's like that meme with uh, Castellanos. It just it never goes away, right? Never go, Never will go away. That's okay. Got to laugh at yourself every now and again, even in the darkest times in life. Uh, fellas, have a great rest of your day. I am going to go bone up on Leif Erickson the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> see you tomorrow, Tom. <laughs> Did you know who Lee Erickson was outside of SpongeBob?
1: Well, that's where I learned it from, was from Spongebob. <laughs> and he goes, hinga dinga a
0: and he... You know, this show is heading in the direction of Spongebob. They're extinct now, aren't they? Or are they still going strong? They. Spongebob? He, yeah, Whatever. I yeah, I don't know. I figured you guys your age, you probably still go home and watch Spongebob <laughs> or the Wiggles. Or... <laughs> I've seen the Wiggles in person. Oh have you? I and I remember I, I don't know Leif Erickson, but I can sing you a couple of uh Wiggle songs. Big red car. I know all that
2: crap. Fruit salad? Fruit salad. Yes, Yummy, yummy, yummy. yummy. yeah.
0: That's it, we're done. We'll see you tomorrow.